Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. This is Josh Carlson with Hilltop Community Church, and this week's message is from our series titled Kingdom Come. Today, we're going to be studying Ezekiel chapter 43 with Kirk Katsorki. Kirk, what are we going to be studying in this chapter today? So today we're going to be in Ezekiel chapter 43, and we're looking at the return of the glory of the Lord to the temple in Jerusalem. And uh, this is really the culmination of Ezekiel's vision of the temple. But what we're going to see is that when God returns, his presence, his power, his provision, and his personal interaction are going to be there with the people. Um, So as you listen to this, I want you to know that God's presence is in your life. His power is there with you. He is providing for you, and he's personally interacting with you. He loves you, and he cares about you. And so that's what we're going to look at today. Let's jump in. Good morning. Hi. If you guys want to make your way back to your seat, pardon me, we're going to be in Ezekiel chapter 43, if you want to go there in your Bible. Um, And then uh, if you're new or visiting with us and and you would like to get to know us a little bit more, you'll find a card looks like this in the seat pocket in front of you. Um, We'd love to get a chance to get to know you. Or maybe you moved and your information isn't the same. You've been with us for a while. If you fill that out, that'll let us know to change that. Um, If you want to write funny comments on there that make fun of my shoes or something, I don't know, whatever you want to do with it, go for it. Um, But uh, actually, seriously, somebody do some jokes on these. Um, We need entertainment. But... um, Go, go ahead and, and if you want to do that. But anyway, Ezekiel chapter 43, and uh, this morning what we're going to be looking at is how do you prepare, kind of the question to get you thinking about this is how do you prepare your house when friends or family are coming over? So you're, you're getting ready for uh, a birthday or a holiday or something, and you're just getting the house ready to go. And uh, as I was thinking about this, one of the people that we love to have over to our house, um, Sean was playing the drums, but we love to have Sean's little son, Benny, over to the house. There are times where Benny will come over, and uh, uh, our kids are a little bit older than Benny, but they will, they'll get out all the toys. Um, they'll get out all the toys that they used to play with. They'll pull out the, the blocks and the magnetiles and all the things that are exciting for Benny uh, to play with at our house, and we just love it when he comes over. Um, And then, you know, you might think of other things that happen where you're having family over or whatever the case may be. And so the reason that you you get the house ready is that you you, you don't want to be judged. No, the reason that you get the house ready is because you you love that person, the the people that are coming over. You really care about them and you're excited that they're coming over. Um, And as we've been going through this section of the book of Ezekiel, uh, what God is doing is he's giving Ezekiel sort of this compelling vision of how they can set up the house for God. Uh, the temple and the surrounding area. He's giving them a vision of saying, this is, if God's coming over, this is what he wants his house to look like. Um, And the period that Ezekiel is referencing is the millennial kingdom. So uh, Jesus' second return, he's going to regather the Jewish people, thousand year reign, all these different things are going to happen. But one of them is this temple where the Jewish people will come under the royal priesthood. He'll be both the king and the high priest of the nation of Israel. um, And they'll worship him in in a style that is very Jewish, Uh, The sacrificial system comes back into play, uh, not because it saves anyone, but because it points to Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice on the cross. But that's what Ezekiel is doing. He's, He's giving the Jewish people a compelling vision of what it will be like to have life with God at the center of the nation of Israel. Um, and this life is going to include uh, God's presence, his power, his provision, and his personal interaction. So he's going to be with them. Uh, he's going to be empowering them. He's going to be providing for them. And he's going to have this personal hands-on care in their life. 
And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you know that that's, that's true of you right now, that, that God has given that to you, that through the gospel of Jesus, he has saved you from the consequences of your sin, he's raised you to be a new person in Jesus, and then the Holy Spirit takes up residence inside of you, and the New Testament teaches that you as a Christian are actually a temple of the living God, and so his presence is with you, his power is with you all the time, uh, he's providing for you and giving you the words to speak and the thoughts to think and the actions to love, he just does all of this for you, um, and he has this personal interaction where he's, he's sitting with you in the middle of your life, and he's caring for you, and it's this beautiful picture. That's what Ezekiel is sharing. That's what, that's what this millennial period will be about for the nation of Israel, but we as the church experience that now, um, and if you just heard that, you don't know Jesus as Lord, I, wanna, I want you to tune in, because I want you to hear what Christianity really is. It's this loving God who cares about you, wants to save you from the consequences of the wrong that you've done, wants to make you whole, um, a brand new creation in him, and then he, he wants to live life with you each and every day, guiding you into holiness and uh, just this awesome relationship with your creator. He wants you to have that. Okay, And if you're a Christian, then boy, listen up, you, you have it. This is this amazing thing that we have with God. But now for the Jewish person, uh, they would have understood the Old Testament really well. And so maybe you know it a little bit, maybe you don't. But just a quick snapshot of the first 11 chapters, okay? So God creates humanity in his image. And all the time God is creating, he says, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then he gives them one term for the relationship. He says, for us to have a good relationship, the only thing I don't need you, I don't want you to do is I don't want you to find good and evil on your terms. I want you to trust that I know the best definition for good and evil. And what does mankind do? They say, no, we're going to go for this rebellion. We're going to eat the fruit and we're going to determine for ourselves what good and evil is. And so they get outside the garden. They lose this, this close and intimate interaction with God. Uh, the, the, the state that God wanted things to be in is just not what it should be anymore because humanity's chosen to determine good and evil for themselves. And the first thing that they do is they, they have some, some children. And the first thing that happens is one of their children kills the other one. And so they're just like, man, what did, were we thinking defining good and evil for ourselves? You can imagine, like, this is not what God intended. And then that, that destruction, it grows and it gets bigger and bigger to the point where in Genesis chapter 6, God looks down at the earth and he says that he's sorry that he created humanity because every intention of their heart is always on evil. He just, they're just hurting each other over and over and over again. And I designed them with value and virtue so that they could know me and then spread my image across the earth. But instead, what they're doing is they're hurting each other over and over again. And so he says, but there's this one man, Noah, and he's going to find grace or favor in my eyes. He's not perfect, but I'm going to fulfill my promises to, I, I, I care about my creation. And so he pulls this one man out and the, the, destroys the rest of everything else, judges the earth, and saves, saves humanity through this one guy. And then Noah gets off the boat, and you know what the first thing he does? He finds himself drunken, naked, and ashamed. Just like Adam and Eve, naked and ashamed, he finds himself in the same place. And so uh, people, they know that we know, we know that we want relationship with God. Like we understand this. We want relationship with God. And so one of the next stories in the Bible in chapter 11 is you have the Tower of Babel. And so the people are gathered together and they're starting to build a city. And you know what God's command was? He says, be fruitful and multiply and cross the earth. And they say, we're going to gather together and we're going to build a great name for ourselves. But we still want relationship with God. So what we're going to do is we're going to build this tower up to God so that he can come down to us. We're going to have relationship with God um, by our efforts and on our terms, okay? We're going we're to tell him how he can come to us. 
And God rejects that. And he says, no, I, I'm the creator. I'm the God. Um, and so I'm going to spread you out and I'm going to confuse you. Uh, but, but then he starts interacting more and more with this guy named Abraham. And as he works with Abraham, he makes these promises. And all those promises then work their way to a situation where he's interacting with a guy named Moses. And with Moses, he sets up the tabernacle. And he says, instead of you telling me how to come to you, he says, I'm going to come to you but I want you to build this tabernacle. And he's super specific about how he wants it done and where the place of holiness is and what they need to do to interact with him. And he gives all these definitions and terms for having a good relationship with him. That's what he's after is this is how you can have relationship with me. This is how we can deal with the problem of sin and the curse. And this is how we can be together again. And then the, t the tabernacle then grows into a temple. They lose the temple um, in 586. We've, as we've been going through this story with Ezekiel, God judges the nation of Judah and the city of Jerusalem with the Babylonians. They lose the temple. They lose their nation. And these people are feeling pretty hopeless. And what Ezekiel has been doing for them is he's been telling them, there will come a time again when the temple will be there and God will have relationship with you once more. Okay, and that's what he's really pulling them towards is seeing that there's, this relationship is going to be brought about again. And in your own life, God wants that relationship with you. He wants that relationship with me. Um, but the, the thing about God is he, he's holy and he's perfect. Now, the, the amazing part about Jesus is he sits down with us in our mess and he deals with it. But he's, he's saying, if, if you want to be with me, there's this sin thing we have to deal with. We have to deal with it. And so that's what the temple vision here is about. It's about dealing with sin. You're going to see words, atonement, uh, consecration, um, purification. You're going to see these words here. And what they're all revealing is that God really wants relationship with us. But in order to be close and intimate with us, there's some things that have to be dealt with. Okay? So that's what we're going to look at in this passage this morning. Let me pray, and then we'll kick off in uh, verse 1 of chapter 43. So Father, we, we thank you that you have revealed uh, that you, you care about us, you love us, um, you want us. Uh, you want us so much that you, you sent your son, our Lord Jesus, to take on the consequences of sin. Uh, he, he died on the cross for our sins, in our place and for our sins. And he was raised from the dead to prove that he truly is the Messiah, the long-awaited one who could save us from sin. Uh, he also rose from the dead that we might be placed into it and given new life, that we would be raised from our old dead ways as well. And then, God, you, you promised that your spirit indwells us as believers, and then uh, that, that spirit then um, empowers us. It convicts us of sin. It shows us a different way to, to think, to speak, and to live than we would choose on our own. And that way to live, it matches the character of Jesus. It matches your character. And so uh, this is an amazing thing, an amazing relationship that you offer to each and every one of us. And I pray that we would see this amazing relationship and that we would uh, respond as you have first loved us, that we would respond with trust and love and obedience as well. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so one through five. This, it says he, and this he is an angel that's leading Ezekiel around. So he led me to the gate, the one that faces east. And I saw the glory of, God, of the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice sounded like the roar of a huge torrent, and the earth shone with his glory. 
The vision I saw was like the one that I had seen when he came to destroy the city and like the ones I had seen by the Kibar Canal. And so Ezekiel is already out of Jerusalem uh, for quite some time. He's not there when it's destroyed. He's, he's exiled um, about 500 miles south of Babylon. And that's where he's talking about this Kibar Canal. So he sees this, but he sees this vision and it says, I fell face down. The glory of the Lord entered the temple by the way of the gate that faced east. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into, or brought me to the inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And so, uh, what happened in verse, uh, or excuse me, in chapter eleven of Ezekiel was uh, the the glory of the Lord actually left the the temple and it left Jerusalem. Um, the people had been giving themselves away to idols and to false gods. They were claiming to be the chosen people, but then living for things other than God. And so their lips served God, but their lives served idols. And so uh, he, the, the presence of the glory of the Lord leaves the temple. It leaves the city in chapter 11. And then Ezekiel gives all the reasons why that took place and how God is going to judge the, the city and the nation. And then that takes place. And now we're on the other side of that. And Ezekiel and all of the nation. They've, they've lost their nation, their temple, uh, the, their city walls. It's all destroyed. Um, and what Ezekiel is doing is he's saying there will come a time when the glory of the Lord will return and God is giving him that vision. And so sort of what you, you have to ask is, you know, do you want God and his glory leading your life? Uh, for, the, for Ezekiel, this is a compelling vision, the idea that God is going to return and he's going to lead the people. Um, on an individual level, does the idea of the glory of God leading your life, is that appealing? Do you think, man, I do want the God of, of, of the Bible, my creator. I want, I want him and his glory to lead my life. Does that prospect of an all-knowing, loving God taking up residence right in the middle of your heart sound good? Or is it terrifying? Maybe it's a little bit of both. You know, the idea of, of you know, if, if you, you know you have company over, you get the vacuum out, you clean the place, and you make it all look shiny. But, but, but God shows up right in the middle of your mess. He, he plops down in your living room when you had no time to clean. And he, and he sits down on your couch and he sees the mess and he says, I'm so happy to be here with you, but there's some things we need to deal with. Does that sound like something you want or, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, let me tuck the mess away really quick. I don't want anybody to know about this, but I kind of love that mess. In fact, I kind of go to that mess to find life. And so I'll, I'll tuck it away. And it'll look shiny when people come over, but God doesn't fall for that. He knows it. He knows the, the, the thing that you're turning to that you don't want anybody else to know about. He understands that you're going to that thing for life instead of him. So does the idea of that God sitting down in the middle of your mess and saying, I love you, and there's some things we need to deal with. Do you want that? But God promises that he's going to be there. He's going to be present. He's going to be with them. And in the next set of verses here, 6 through 9, what God does is he promises to reside with the people forever. And then he says that unholy behavior will not be permitted where he is. Verse 6, so while a man was standing beside me, I heard someone speaking to me from the temple. He said to me, son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet where I will dwell among the Israelites forever. The house of Israel and their kings will no longer defile my name by their religious prostitution and by their corpses of their kings and at their high places. 
any time you see high places in the Old Testament, it's talking about places where they would go up on a hill and worship idols. Verse 8, whenever they place their threshold next to my threshold and their doorposts beside my doorposts, with only a wall between me and them, they were defiling my holy name by their detestable acts they committed. So I destroyed them in my anger. I let, now let them remove their prostitution and the corpses of their kings far from me, and I will dwell with them forever. And so what you have here in these verses is this is a, a no-nonsense statement right here. Um, God does not want his name blasphemed, profaned, or polluted. He's not interested in being represented as something that he's not. And, and that's, that's what had been going on with this nation as they were called to be, uh, a, a, there was this priesthood and there was this holy nation and their job was to reveal the light and the glory of the Lord to the nations around them. And instead what they had done was they had said, this is, this is what it's all about to have relationship with, with the God of the Bible. This is, this is what it's like to know Yahweh, uh, the, the God of our creator. This is what it's like to know him. And then instead of actually revealing what it was like to know him, they gave themselves to those dark places. And so he's not interested in having his name profaned or polluted by half-hearted, hypocritical religious prostitutes. Uh, people who claim to love God but sell themselves to every idol. Um, that's just really unappealing to him. You know, in the New Testament, he calls us ambassadors, and he says that we're to be as ambassadors. And you can imagine if you are a king or a, a ruler of a nation, you said, hey, I need you to go be my representative in this other nation. I can, I, I'm sending you to be my representative in this other nation, and I want you to tell them what it is to be a part of the nation that we are. And I want them to understand who we are as a people, and I want them to understand our goodness and our kindness, and that we're a nation that blesses other people. And then this, this ambassador goes over there, and instead of revealing the goodness and the kindness and the blessing of the nation... What he reveals is, you know, kind of this half-hearted, oh, you know, that's, you know, it's kind of neat over there, but I'd really actually love this other place more. If I could choose, I actually wouldn't be a part of that kingdom. I'd be a part of a different kingdom. And so he says, that's not the kind of ambassador or representative that I'm looking for. I'm not half-hearted, hypocritical people, but I want people who are, who are all in. And they, they know me and they love me. So God's not interested in lips that claim to love him matched with lives that don't trust or pursue him. And if you think about it, who would be? You know, put this inside the context of marriage and you, and you have a, a spouse and I say, I say, Becky, I really, really love you and I really care about you and my lips are expressing all this kindness and love towards Becky, but my life, what I'm doing is I'm like, I'm really actually more interested in golf. I'm really actually more interested in hunting. I'm really actually more interested in my career. I'm really actually more interested in uh, the, the secret dark places that I have that I hope you don't find out about. I don't actually want to be transparent and, and know you. My lips, my lips say I love you and I want to be transparent with you, but my life goes a different direction. Is Becky going to go, I'm so glad I'm married to Kurt? She's not. She's going to go, man, I wish I had my husband's heart. I wish he, I wish he loved me. And so that's what God is saying, is he's saying, I, I don't want a people that say, I love you with their lips, and their lives demonstrate something totally different. Let them remove their prostitution and the corpses of their kings from me, and I will dwell among them forever. 
this idolatry and death that they've been worshiping, it's not going to be a part of our relationship. We're going to get rid of it. And so he reveals next that the purpose of this vision that he's giving to Ezekiel of the temple is obedience. He says, as for you, verse 10, as for you, son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel so that they may be ashamed of all their iniquities. And that word iniquity means crooked lives. Uh, we talked about that last week, that iniquity means crooked. Um, and so they're, they're, they're living crooked lives. He says, let them measure its pattern and they will be ashamed of all that they have done. Reveal the design of the temple to them, its layouts with its exits and entrances, its complete design along with its statutes, design specifications, and the laws. Write it down in their sight so they may observe its complete design and all its statutes and they may carry them out. This is the law of the temple. Its surrounding territory, all its surrounding territory on top of the mountain will be especially holy. Yes, this is the law of the temple. And so he says, I have a specific design and pattern for this temple, and I want it to be carried out in, in detail. I want you to pay attention to the small things of this design, and I want you to carry it out. And, and I want you to have a relationship with me like, like, like I'm telling you, I, I, want it like, I want to have a relationship with you like this, so come to me in this way. And so the point of revealing what's going on with this temple design is to say, I, I, want, you to, I want you to obey me. And all these little small specifications, I want you to pay attention and I want you to obey them. And what he's doing here, this isn't intended to be a guilt trip, though he does say that when they look at all of this, they'll be ashamed of what they've done. Um, and if you look back on the course of your life before you knew Christ, or in the moments where you're not walking with him, you see the actions that you take and how it harms yourself and it harms other people. I think we all know those moments where we go, that really wasn't the moral thing to do. And you feel ashamed. Um, now, now, now the, the thing about that, that, that shame and that guilt is that God doesn't want us to sit in it. Prolonged guilt is never from God because the consequences of sin and the guilt were laid on Jesus. And so we confess and we recognize that that wasn't the right and moral choice in that situation. But it doesn't say wallow there. You don't have to beat yourself up. You don't have to get a leather strap and whack yourself on the back. Like he doesn't need you to beat yourself up. He took the consequences. You just agree that this was wrong and you move from it back into relationship with him. But when we look at the pattern of our old lives, if I were to look at the pattern of my old life, I don't think, boy, I wish I could do that again. I think that's a time of life I'm glad I'm, is behind me. And so it's not intended to be a guilt trip, but an honest assessment of what we're living for. In Isaiah chapter 29, uh, thir verses 13 and 14, it says, The Lord said, because the people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. They're working on religious principles rather than relationship with me. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder and wisdom, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of the discerning men shall be hidden. Uh, and so he's saying, stop, stop trying to come to me in your own logic, in your own abilities. Stop trying to have relationship with me on the way that humans think this is supposed to work. But instead, listen to the divine speaking to you. Listen to the divine speaking to you and saying, I'm going to show you my wonder. You're going to be in awe of me. And so do you love God and his promises more than you love sin? 
Do I really, do I really want him? Or do I want to do this religious performance that allows me to stay in this place of sin? Do I really love him? Or do I want to do what the world is saying and keep, keep drinking the sin? Do I really love him? Or is this other thing more appealing to me? And if the other thing is more appealing to you, then I think you need to take another look at the God of the Bible. You need to take another look at this Jesus who loves you. You need to take another look at this one who would lay down his life for you. You need to take a look at this, this, this Jesus who would show us the way to treat people with compassion and kindness and goodness. That he would teach us to treat people with equality and love. The ways of the world, they, they all have to do with us raising ourselves up. The ways of Christ all have to do with us serving others and raising them up. And so, there's a lot of clever people out there, and maybe, maybe you're one of them. Maybe I'm one of them. But God is not fooled by our clever answers. He knows our heart. And so he wants us to go to him and trust and wonder of who he is and what he's done. Amazement at the works of the God of the Bible. And if you want him, I think it's important to remember Jesus' words in John 14, 15. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. So he says, if you, if you really love me, if you really want me instead of these things of the earth, if you really want me instead of the sin that's uh, entangling you, then, then, I want you to, then I want you to obey me. I want you to come to me out of love and obedience. You know, there's that book, The Five Love Languages. I think there needs to be a sixth one added to it because God's love language is obedience. He says, if you want to demonstrate love to me, obey me. Start with the small things and obey me. And then the other thing that he promises, right? So you hear that and you hear obey, obey and you're like, oh man, that's hard. He says, and I will give you the helper and he will be with you forever. I'm gonna make you my temple and my power and my presence, my provision, my personal hands-on care is gonna take up residence in your life and in your heart and I'm gonna give you everything that you need. But the purpose behind this, this vision that Ezekiel has given is, is the obedience of the nation. God really cares that we would follow him in loving obedience. And then the next thing he's going to do here is he's going to describe the altar and its purpose. Okay, so there's going to be this altar in the millennial temple where they'll perform sacrifices. He's going to describe its dimensions and its purpose. Um, we have a rendering that they'll play on the screen behind me while I read this. Um, so here's the dimensions of the altar in the millennial temple. Temple says, these are the measurements of the altar in units of length, each unit being standard plus three inches. And so a cubit plus, the, what they did is they measured, a cubit was from your elbow to your wrist, and then a cubit plus the rest of it was with your hand, okay? So he's saying, use the longer length cubit, is essentially what he's saying here. The gutter is 21 inches deep and 21 inches wide, with a rim nine inches around on its edge. And the, this is the base of the altar. The distance from the gutter on the ground to the lower edge is three and a half feet and the width of the ledge is 21 inches. There are seven feet from the small edge to the large edge whose width is 21 inches. The altar hearth is seven feet high and the four horns project upward from the earth. The hearth is square 21 feet long by 21 feet wide. The ledge 
is 24 and a half feet long by 24 and a half feet wide with four equal sides. The rim all around it is 10 and a half inches and the gutter is 21 inches all around it. The altar steps face east. Okay. And so what the altar was there to do, um, what it will be there to do in this millennial time, this altar is different. Um, it, it's, uh, I, I shared last week, I don't know if I shared it in this service, but uh, this, the book of Ezekiel was almost left out of the Old Testament canon. The Jewish people looked at it, and these chapters in particular, from 40 to 48, they're like, this is so different than what we understand about the Levitical practices that we don't know if this is actually a vision from God. This might not be authentic. Um, Ezekiel may have been uh, having visions for a different reason, right? That's kind of what they're thinking. And uh, um, they almost left it out. And, and then uh, one Jewish rabbi in particular went through the process of kind of showing how these two things could mesh. But what we understand now, the other side of Jesus, is that the reason these things are different is because the purpose is different. The Old Testament sacrifices pointed forward to Jesus' death on the cross. The, these sacrifices will point back to Jesus' death on the cross. The other thing that they do is Jesus is actually present during this time in the temple. He is both the king and the high priest. He's a royal high priest during this period. And you can imagine him overseeing this. And there is the one who is, who is risen, the slain lamb. And they're actually taking these animals and then going through the process and going, oh, duh. He did this for us. But what they're doing here is they're setting up their lifestyle to be pure. And so the question for us is, are we set up to have a pure lifestyle? If so, uh, how so, and what needs to be arranged? So am I, am I setting myself up to, to live a pure lifestyle? Am I setting myself up for relationship with God that will result in obedience? And are there things that need to be changed? And what we see in this is the details matter. You look at the, the altar, and he's like, it's this many cubits, and this, and it's this many inches, and this many feet. He's very specific about it. Uh, talks about the placement of the horns and all these different things. And uh, so, so what we realize is that if we want to be trusted with big things, we need to be faithful in the small things. Um, if you want to be trusted with big things, be faithful in the small things. And for like me personally, I want, I want to, like I, I care about God. I care about his kingdom. I care about where he's taking this earth. I care about where he's taking my life and my children's lives. Like this stuff matters to me. And so if I want to be, if I want to do great things for God, I have to be faithful in the small things first. And an example of this, like my, my oldest son, he wants to go duck hunting with me. Um, but I'm not just going to throw a shotgun in his hands. Here we go. Let's give it a go. Like that's not going to turn out well. So what do we do? We start young. We start early. And we learn, we learn how to, here's a BB gun. And here's how to use it safely. And then we transition to a 22. And here's how we use this safely. And here's what firearm safety is all about. We walk through the process. And as he's faithful, faithful with the small things, I feel more comfortable to entrust bigger things to him. Okay? The caliber goes up. Um, and in a similar way, that's how God is talking to us. He's saying, if you, want, if you want the large caliber stuff, you need to be faithful with the small caliber stuff first. And so if you're wondering, where do I start? How do, how do I start this? Like, I'm not exactly even sure what that means. How do I start? Where do I start with the small things? And what I would tell you is that God is a relational God. He wants to interact with you personally, and he's inviting you to interact with him personally. And so one of the smallest things that we can do is we can talk to him. 
You can wake up in the morning and you can say, God, this is what's going on in my day to day. And I'm, I've got this work shift and uh, I see this going on with one of my kids. And I know my wife could really use some encouragement. Um, and I'm kind of hungry right now. Um, but uh, I, also wanted to, I also wanted to make sure, you know, you just kind of walk through what's going on in your day. And you just talk to him with respect. Talk to him with respect. Then you go through your day and you kind of see where he leads you as the day goes by. And then you get to the end of the day and you go, you know, you lay your head down at night and you say, God, hey, this is, this is what happened today. And I kind of see this one thing. I really struggled in that moment. I said something I didn't want to say. Um, I trust you to forgive me and cleanse me from that and teach me uh, to have a better approach to that next time. Um, and then you lay your hand on your wife and you say, I really care about her and I'm praying this for her. I see this going on. You lay your kids down at night and you put your hand on them and you say, I really care about my kids and I love God. Just do this for Decker and do this for Nadia and do this for Cora. This is what I'm praying for Solomon and Shiloh and Ben. You just kind of walk through. And if you'll be faithful with the small things, do that for a week. See what happens. Give it a go for a month and look back over that month. Try it for a year. And go, wow, look how much my mind has changed in so many of my interactions. The way that I approach things is very different. Do it for 10 years and look back over the course of 10 years and be like, man, I just started with that really small caliber stuff. And now God has me discipling people and he's got me involved in the lives of non-believers and I'm sharing the gospel with them. And I, and I really used to struggle with anger. And that guy cut me off in the car today. And you know I didn't want to put my finger up as fast as I did before. Um, I've got some patience going on here. And God is transforming me in this. I'm not who I used to be anymore. I see what he's doing in my life. I see the peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness, the self-control of the spirit showing up in me. I see these things. And you do that for a lifetime. And your kids and grandkids your friends, your family. They'll remember the legacy that you left. Of somebody who walked with God. Of somebody who had a relationship. The, the, the presence, the power, the provision, and the personal care. They go, man, you could just see it all over dad's life. You could just see it all over mom's life. And so that's what this altar is about. It's about where we worship, what we worship. If our life is arranged to worship God or something else. And then in this next set of verses, he talks about the purification and consecration of the altar. Verse 18. Then he said to me, Son of man, this is what the Lord God says. These are the statutes for the altar on the day that it is constructed so that the burnt offerings may be sacrificed on it and the blood may be spattered on it. You are to give a bull from the herd as a sin offering to the Levitical priests who are from the offspring of Zedek, who will approach me in order to serve me. This is the declaration of the Lord God. You are to take some of its blood and apply it to the four corners of, excuse me, four horns of the altar. And what these horns represent is God's wrath, his, his righteous hatred of sin. God hates sin. And the reason he hates sin is because he designed us to function out of, his, out of his virtue and value, his character, and then that that character, the image of God, would be spread across the face of the earth. And like I said earlier, man rejects spreading the, the image of God across the earth, and they 
get crooked and bent, and they, we take a different image around the earth. Not one where we're caring for people and blessing them, but one where we're seeking ourselves over others. And so God has, has righteous hatred of that. And when they put the blood on the four horns, it was a representation of the atonement. That's what he says here. The four corners of the ledge and all around the rim. In this way, you will purify the altar and make atonement for it. Uh, the idea was that the, there's a cost to sin, that it was paid with blood. And by putting the blood on those four horns, God's wrath was atoned for. The consequences of sin were taken care of. We understand that the blood of animals never did that, but pointed forward, in this case, in the Millennial Temple, pointing backward to Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice to make atonement um, for the consequences of sin. You break that word down, at-one-ment. When when Christ died on the cross, he created, we were separate, and he brought us at-one with God as sin was, dis- was taken away. You are then to take the bull, verse 21, you are then to take away the bull of the sin offering and it must be burned outside the sanctuary in a place appointed for the temple. On the second day, you are to present an unblemished male goat as a sin offering. They will purify the altar just as they did with the bull. When you have finished the purification, you are to present a young unblemished bull and an unblemished ram from the flock. You are to present them before the Lord. The priest will throw salt on them and sacrifice them as a burnt offering to the Lord. You will offer a goat for a sin offering each day for seven days. A young bull and a ram of the flock, both unblemished, are also to be offered. For seven days, the priests are to make atonement for the altar and cleanse it. In this way, they will consecrate it and complete the days of purification. On the eighth day and afterward, the priests will offer burnt offerings and fellowship offerings on the altar, and I will accept you. This is the declaration of the Lord God. And so what they're doing with this altar is they're, they're consecrating, they're dedicating it to God. They're saying that this is holy and separate and different. Um, and it's going to be specifically holy and separate and different because it's dedicated to God. And so for, for us as individuals, the question is, have we consecrated or dedicated our lives for Jesus? Uh, the act by which the church understands this is done is through baptism. When you're baptized, it's, it's a statement of, I am dedicated and consecrated to follow Jesus the rest of my life. That's what baptism is about. It's this public statement of dedication and consecration. You go under the water and you say, buried with Christ, and you say, raised it to walk in newness of life. And before you do that, you say, I promise to follow. I'm making a commitment to follow Jesus all the days of my life. And so that's what that's about. It's a consecration or dedication of, of ourself to God. And so if you've done that, the question is, how do you follow through on a daily basis? So I, I'm saying my, my life is for God. I've, 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 I believe that. I've made that commitment. I've entered into that covenant with him where I am his and he is mine, but he's the leader. I'm not the leader. That's, that's the original sin. I don't lead this thing. He does. And I follow him and I go where he goes. And his power and his provision and his presence and his personal care is in my life. And when he says, hey, Kurt, you got this thing going on in your life that, man, that's a messy living room. We're going to deal with it. I say, okay, let's deal with it. And so Jesus is not looking for fair weather fans. He's looking for committed disciples. 
And if you haven't dedicated your life to Christ, I guess my question is, what are you waiting for? You're here. You're listening. You're seeking. There's a, there's a hole inside of you that you're, you've maybe tried to fill with all sorts of different things. Solomon says that he, that he tried to fill his life with everything under the sun. And what he came to, the conclusion that he came to is that all of it was vanity. All of it was useless. It didn't matter how much wealth he had. It didn't matter how, it didn't matter how much sex he had. It didn't matter how much power he had. He tried it all and he said, none of it filled me. And so maybe you've tried that. You've tried it all. And you realize none of it filled me. And so you're here today and you're listening. And what the God, of the, the God who made you and loves you is saying is turn from those things and listen. I love you and I have something way better than all those things you've been pursuing. And that thing is he says, it's me. I, I, I'm going to step into your heart. I'm going to step into that place. I'm going to fill you in ways that no created thing ever could, that only the creator could fill that. I'm going to do it. You've been jamming a square peg in a round hole forever. Why don't you stop? And instead, listen, I'm here. He's here. He loves you. And he wants you. The terms of the relationship are very simple. He says, repent from living apart from me and let me in. And so the challenge today is how is God, leeching, or how is God leading each of us at better rearranging our lives so that he could be the center of it? Everybody's on a journey here. You may be here this morning and, and you really don't know that much about God. You may be here this morning and you've been waiting to hear for the opportunity to say, I trust Jesus. And if you just said it while I was talking, I want you to talk to me afterwards. I, I made a decision to trust Jesus today and I'm moving forward in relationship with him. Some of us have, been, have made that decision and we're following God, but he's sitting on that couch and he's talking to us about the mess of our living room and, and he's not there to beat us up, but he's there to make us holy. He's not there to tear us down, but to make us strong. And so he's going to walk you through that process where you learn to follow him. And some of us have learned to be strong in the Lord. And now he's saying, I want to call you into ministry. I want you to be a fisher of men. You're like, but I don't work at a church. I, I work for a school district. Fantastic. That's right where I wanted you. But I don't work for a church. I, I, work, I, work, at a, I work at a plant that manufactures. Great. I put you there. And I want you to go be a fisher of men right there. I don't even have a job. I, I just stay home and I look after these children and they're making my hair fall out. And he says, great. You're there to instill what it is to have a relationship with God. That's why I have you there. And so I want you to invite people in. And maybe you've been doing this for a while and you've learned some of the tricks. God showed you some ways to reach into people's lives and put an arm around a shoulder and draw them in. And you're learning that and you go, hey, would you come along with me? We're going to do this event. I actually, you know what it is? I'm just having a dinner at my house. It's not even an event. I just have a home. Do you have one of those? And I'm going to invite some people over for dinner. You should invite somebody too. And let's show them what it is to have a relationship with God. Talk to them about their life and ask how we could pray for them. We don't have to complicate this thing. 
So that's the challenge. The encouragement is that God has promised to be with us forever. His presence, his power, his provision, and his personal interaction, he has promised to be here through the whole thing. And so I hope when we hear that challenge, we hear that encouragement, and I pray that the Holy Spirit is tugging on you to take that next step of faith. And then out of love, you'll step in obedience. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would show us your glory, and we thank you that in a lot of ways you already have. You've shown us your glory through the person and work of your son, Jesus. And this Jesus that John describes as full of grace and truth. And we thank you that Jesus, your son, he made his home among us and he showed us uh, the fullness of your glory. He showed us the fullness of the Trinity, what it is to uh, be truly human and a partaker of the divine nature. His unconditional self-sacrificing love that saves us. And Father, we ask that day by day you would lead us to talk to you, to seek you out, to trust you and to represent you well with our thoughts, our words, and our actions. Father, we thank you that you've given us the helper, the Holy Spirit, to guide us, to empower us, and to point us to Jesus. And Father, we ask that you would work in our lives right now, right here, right now, that you would bring those who don't yet follow you to do so, that you would bring those of us who know you to know you more closely, to trust you more closely, and to share you with others. Father, I pray that your spirit is working in that way in the hearts of the listeners here today. And then in my heart too. Draw me closer to you, God. We ask that you break down the barriers for those who have not yet trusted you and that they would come to you in faith today. And we pray all this in Jesus' Jesus' name. Today, you have been listening to our series, Kingdom Come, where we have been discussing God's glory in our lives. We pray that you are both challenged and encouraged by God's word today. Join us again next week as we explore God's design for holiness and his transformation of your life. The dream is that Hilltop is a home for the growing family of God, and we are so glad that you are a part of the family.